episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Vicki Odino. I'm with the Atlas Society, the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways, such as through animated videos and graphic novels. Today, we will be discussing current events with a panel consisting of our very own Atlas Society scholars, founder David Kelly, philosopher Stephen Hicks, and economist Richard Salzman. We'll also save time at the end to take some audience questions. So throughout the discussion, feel free to type in your questions into the Zoom uh, Q&A section or the chat, or if you're watching us live on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, or YouTube, you can just type your questions into the comment stream. Today, we're going to cover three areas, the Derek Chauvin verdict in Minneapolis, gun control, and COVID success stories. So thanks for joining us and let's get started with the first topic. Yesterday afternoon, the country was anxiously awaiting the verdict in the George Floyd case in Minneapolis. And I live in downtown Chicago and for the past week, workers have been sawing and drilling, boarding up storefronts on Michigan Avenue and adjacent streets in anticipation of the verdict. And that's a scene that was repeated in cities across the country. Politicians, celebrities, and other public figures made it clear that anything other than a guilty verdict on all three counts would result in disturbances. The jury came back with guilty verdicts on all three, and thankfully, the streets remained peaceful overnight. While I don't want to necessarily discuss whether the jury made the right decision, I do want to discuss the overall process. One of the concerns I have is that the jury was not sequestered and the trial not moved to a different jurisdiction. So what is the probability that this jury was influenced by the protests over the last year, riots in the city over the past week, politicians calling for the right verdict, cancellations of in-person school, and the postponement of pro sports events? And how does any such influence impact the rule of law? So I'm gonna start with you, Richard. Very good, thank you. I have the same concerns and another Part of that was a payment from the city or from the state to the um, Floyd family in advance of the verdict as well. So that could be seen as another case of uh, influencing the jury. Yeah, and they would be more likely to be influenced if not sequestered. I just wanted to make uh, three main points. The first one about juries generally, I think it's interesting in mostly Anglo-American law that there's a presumption of innocence. We're all familiar with that. But there's also kind of a norm associated with the presumption that the jury gets it right. You know, that, that it's not infallible or never not biased, but in a system where they see the facts, they have the facts way more than we do as outsiders and guided by a judge who seems to be fair. And this one did seem to be fair, reading them basically the rule book. I, I think it is fair enough to say this was probably a correct decision. I'm only a bit confused, and I do know a bit about law, that they basically threw every possible charge at him other than murder one, and they are in somewhat in conflict. So murder two basically has some intent in it, but it's intent during the act. In other words, it's not premeditated, not planned well out in advance. But they did basically charge him with wanting to kill Floyd during the act, which is really quite remarkable because it was in broad daylight with everyone watching. So that is quite a remarkable thing. And third degree murder, if you know, is uh, negligence, you know, which is like you know, inadvertently, un, uh, you know, killing someone with a, a, due to a car accident or something like that. He was also convicted of that, which is somewhat, somewhat contradictory to the idea that he intended it. But leaving that aside, I think the biggest question we might want to think about is whether 
uh, as Vicky said, juries are being tampered with in effect by outside pressure. So you think of a case like this, and if you, if you recall back to the original incident in May of 2020, pretty much everyone who saw the final 10 minutes thought it was awful. There was almost no one who said that was a proper use of force. Now, if the jury had been uh, gathered the very next day, had the trial gone on the very next day, and which is impossible, of course, but and then we got the verdict we just got, would, does that mean there would not have been any violence for a year, no out, out, outcries and things like that? In other words, if you truncate the whole thing, the act itself seemed atrocious. It seemed atrocious to all eyes. And then the jury and the judge just said the same thing. So what is all the hue and cry about systemic racism, defund the police, systemic racism within the cops? You know, it's, there isn't really any evidence in this trial that it was a race-based act. So that these are other things that make me worry, not that the jury didn't get it right, not that the jury wasn't being objective, but in the context of all the violence surrounding it, it's hard to be sure that they weren't affected by that thing. And I think that's a very sad story in regards to looking at um, judicial decisions. Now, I just want to, I only have a couple more. I just want to quote a couple of, of important officials in response to this, um, because it suggests that this kind of questioning of the justice system itself will continue to go on. And I think in a somewhat non-objective way. So for example, the attorney general of Minnesota, Ellison, said in response, I do not call today's verdict justice because justice implies true restoration, but it is accountability. So that you have the top uh, law enforcement officer in Minneapolis, in Minnesota, basically saying it's not an act of justice. The verdict is not just. Mm. That seems uh, a bit incendiary to me. Now, the Police Officers Foundation, I thought was interesting. The Police Officers Foundation of Minneapolis said, there are no winners in this case, and we respect the jury's decision, interestingly. But then it says, we need the political pandering to stop and the race baiting of elected officials to stop. In addition, we need to stop the divisive comments, unquote. Now, the vice president and the president came out. In both cases, they referred to the country still being laced with systemic racism. I mean, they applauded the verdict, but they still repeated, I think, an unfounded charge that America is systemically racist. So Harris, for example, quote, a measure of justice was done, but a measure of justice isn't the same as equal justice, unquote. So she's still suggesting that this is a system not of equal justice. Um, it's basically, in her view, racial injustice that the races are uh, unequally treated in the courts. Uh, so she says, we still must reform the system. Well, that's not all that surprising, but she says, America has a long history of systemic racism. That's an interesting formulation because you could say objectively that, uh, you know, for the opening decades and up and at least until say the Jim Crow laws were repealed, there was systemic racism, but it's quite an overgeneralization to say the long history, meaning the entire history is systemic racism. So I think that's a bit disturbing. Um, black, now here's another formulation. Black Americans have been treated throughout the course of American history as less than human, unquote. That's the vice president of the United States. That is a bit, I think, strong and wrong. Biden, I won't go a lot into Biden, but systematic racism as well, repeated 
the argument that it was systematic racism still in the country. I'll, I'll leave you lastly with something I thought was very philosophical, actually, coming from Nancy Pelosi, of all people, because this is, this is a very odd take, but a very philosophic take on the whole thing. So she had a press conference and she said the following, thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice. Uh, for calling out to your mom that I can't breathe. Because of you and because of millions of people in the world who came out to protest for, um, for justice, your name will always be synonymous with justice, unquote. So I, I think this idea of, and I'm just trying to imagine George Floyd goes out that day, you know, as a kind of Jesus figure, you know, eager and interested in sacrificing himself for the greater good of, I mean, that's how Nancy Pelosi is portraying it, which I think is, I don't even know how to describe that other than not just inaccurate, but somewhat of an, almost an insult, maybe even to George Floyd. You know, the guy is going out and whether he passed a bad bill or not, he was not looking to sacrifice himself for the greater good of Nancy Pelosi's cause. So, but this idea of sainthood and sacrifice going together um, is very common in altruism, as you know. And the idea that this is synonymous with justice, well, of course it isn't. That's the, the, the idea of self-sacrificing and sacrificing for the sake of others who are guilty, but you're not, is the epitome of injustice, not justice. So uh, I'll stop there. I just wanted to bring out those points and, um, and leave it at that. Thanks, Richard, I appreciate that. David, do you have anything you wanna add? Um, sure, uh, two points. Um, uh, the first is about the rule of law. Uh, I, it, in my view, the, the law is one of two fields that have the most highly developed standards of uh, applied epistemology, uh, the other being science. You know, epistemology in general gives us uh, canons of, for reasoning that apply across all fields, but every field, each field has to develop its own um, applied techniques, standards, methods to deal with the uh, specific and uh, highly complex issues it deals with. Uh, and I think the legal system, um, like scientific method, is one of uh, our best examples of that. This, the law has been developed over centuries involving the adversarial system, the burden of proof principle, and a very, very detailed, complex law of evidence that has um, evolved over centuries, uh, going back to British law. So uh, for that reason, I almost never second guess jury verdicts. There are exceptions. Um, O.J. Simpson, I thought, was a circus. But um, in this case, uh, I, I, that's almost never. I don't have the evidence that the juries had, and I don't hold the fate of another person in my hands. Uh, and that was my first thought last, uh, late last May when the incident occurred. I thought it looks bad, but I don't, I, I don't go by a single video. And uh, we'll this will be dealt with in the law. And, but I, I think I was in a fairly small minority in that way because millions of people, or at least thousands, hundreds of thousands probably, were on the streets demonstrating. And um, as if they had, they'd already decided this guy was guilty. Um, even Biden, uh, President Biden jumped the gun and the others that Richard mentioned so I, I'm glad the, um, the trial took place. And 
I have no second guessing about the results. We may learn more um, if it goes to appeal or whatever. But for now, um, the jury has spoken. And I would, but I would have been equally satisfied um, had the verdict um, been acquittal on one or more counts. The law, I would still regard it as a case of the law working. That is almost, there are very few people who, who I think could honestly say that. Um, certainly to judge all the mobs. And that brings me to the second point, which it kind of echoes what uh, Richard was saying. Um, the guilt of Chauvin was required to sustain the narrative of racism and systemic racism. It was required by the narrative and people uh, clearly, I think, were, were conducting themselves by the narrative not by the facts. They were not, whatever the jury verdict would have been, it had to be guilty on all counts. And, uh, you know, this is, um, this has been backed up in particular by the idea that there's been an epidemic of shooting of black people by officers. Um, and it's true that the percentage of blacks among people shot by cops is higher than the percentage of blacks in the population. Yes. But in absolute numbers, more whites are shot by police than blacks. And the percentage of crimes committed by blacks is higher than their share of the population. So you have to, and there, that's all, those are only two of the zillion statistics you can find out there. It's been studied. Um, there's very little evidence that I've seen uh, that it, it policing is racist. And I'm not aware, correct me anyone if, if I'm wrong, but I'm not aware that any accusation of racism was introduced uh, in the trial as Chauvin's motive. Right. So the, all, everything that's happening since then and around it, all the jubilation um, um, on the part of people who were you know, insisting on a certain outcome was interpretive, an interpretation of this as a, as a comment uh, or an incident relevant to racism when, the, as far as I can see, the trial had nothing to do with that. And that just tells me that as much as I value the rule of law and respect uh, the trial, the way it was conducted, as far as I know, um, as an instance of the rule of law, I think that what we have today is the rule of law is kind of an island in a sea of mob psychology, jumping to conclusions, govern, being governed by narratives. So um, I, 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 I take hope in the fact that the law worked, the law was conducted uh, with some irregularities perhaps. Um, I take a lot of uh, fear in the surrounding sea that I mentioned. Thanks, David. And we're spending a little bit longer on this topic, but I think it's really important. Um, I mean, this just happened yesterday. So I really do want to hear, Stephen, what you have to say about this. Yeah, I wanted to contribute from my, my perch inside of higher education. Uh, Richard is asking about the hue and cry, and David is talking about the narrative and the, the broader sea culture at, at work. And so my, my point just will be about the contribution of higher education over the, especially the last generation. Um, you know, the theme of the presumption 
of innocence and due process that are cherished in American, British, more broadly Western legal tradition have been to a significant extent eroded in higher education over the past two generations. And this is important because this is where still the vast majority of professional track educated people spend a significant amount of their time and they're not exposed to it in the way that people were 50 years ago. And that's going to spill out into the, the more general, general culture. Now we've seen it more specifically on any time that there is an inter-race or an intergender or inter-ethnic or inter-religious conflict that the, the presumption of innocence is very quickly set aside in, in uh, universities and colleges internal procedures, uh, a presumption of innocence and, and as well as various sorts of due process are very quickly set aside. And so there's developed a whole culture of, there's a more or less right answer expected and the university is tracking onto what that previously expected right answer is going to be. Now we can blame a lot of this to you know, kind of a generic postmodernism that has been uh, ascendant obviously in higher education for a while. There the idea that there is no such thing as objectivity. There are no uh, uh, individual rights. The idea of, uh, of, of, of evidence and logic and civil argument back and forth, even on issues about which we profoundly disagree. Largely that has been assaulted by postmodernism and the large number of students who have signed on in various degrees to postmodernism. They will then graduate as human beings who don't really have any confidence or expectation that the broader legal system is going to, to follow into those uh, or, or along with those precepts. Another sign of this has been over the course of the, the last uh, generation, I've noticed this specifically, and I've done a little research tracking this, is the decline of honor codes within universities and colleges. And part of the liberal arts ideal has been to say that uh, uh, students should not be under on any sort of authoritarian education, that students need to take ownership of their education, but they also need to take uh, ownership of, uh, of, of all of the organizations and, and have student government and have an honor court to deal with cases of plagiarism and academic dishonesty and so on. And part of this is uh, part of the liberal art education uh, ideal of teaching uh, university students how to become citizens in a broader liberal democratic republic. But there has been a, a, a wholesale abandonment of honor codes in colleges and universities over the last generation. They're replaced by various sorts of compliance codes, to put it bluntly, where there are speech codes and there are various uh, procedures that are going to be performed by the faculty and by the administrations and students are expected to do what they are told. So what we have then is a whole generation of students who are not learning the do-it-yourself element of it. They don't know uh, what these things mean in practice. They are at most uh, you know, just general principles that might have been floated to them in their eighth grade civics class and that's about all it really means. I'm starkly overstating the case. Honor codes aren't dead in all institutions, but there has been a wholesale decline. And I think that does contribute to the way lots of uh, educated people have been uh, acting in the, in the protests and so forth. 
Thanks, thanks a lot, Stephen. If anybody has any questions on this particular topic, go ahead right now and um, put those in the chat box or whatever platform you're on in the comments section. We'll get to the questions after we finish our three topics, but feel free to put those questions in at any time. Um, the next topic is gun control. And sadly, mass shootings have topped the news yet again, the most recent in Indianapolis where eight people were killed. And as expected, what follows is a call for more gun restrictions against civilians. During the election, Biden and many other Democrats promised to come for guns. And a couple of weeks ago, Biden introduced six gun control executive orders that he wants to implement, noting that, quote, there's no reason someone needs a weapon of war with 100 rounds, 100 bullets that can be fired from a weapon, end quote. People often talk about allowing firearms for hunting and for self-defense, but an important reason for the Second Amendment that's often neglected in the public discussion is repelling a tyrannical government, which would require more than 10 rounds. Is this a reasonable concern? And let's start with you, David. Oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> I, I looked at... Uh, one the one of the most famous Supreme Court decisions on uh, uh, gun rights was the Heller decision um, in I believe two thousand six in uh, pertaining to Washington D.C. draconian uh, limitation on gun ownership, basically a ban. And um, uh, just a small point here, but it was interesting to me that um, uh, the brief written by Justice Scalia um, went to some pains to distinguish the preface to the Second Amendment, uh, which reads a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Uh, that's the preamble that states why we're gonna have this amendment. But then the amendment goes on, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And Scalia's main argument, um, and the court's main finding is that the preamble does not restrict the right. The right is quite general of the people to keep and bear arms, whether especially for self-defense, but also for hunting and, and so forth. Um, so I think I, I would say, you know, it, it's um, relevant to distinguish the case of the militia. Um, that's not to say I disagree that that is an important reason for gun ownership. And um, apparently there was, there was a long history Lying behind the amendment. Um, <clears throat> so it's not surprising to me that that, that uh, militia issue has been somewhat neglected. In any case, I think uh, there's not a question in my mind that people should have that right because um, the government, we basically uh, 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 concede to the government the right to um, um, prosecute and protect us against crime and deter crime um, to avoid the uh, chaos of anarchism, that's fine. But, but self-defense remains an important um, area uh, in, in cases where um, there, there is crime. And for that reason, um, I think there's no, there, it's an absolute uh, human right. The question is, what kind of arms? And I'm not an expert in this, um, but I think there, we have to think of it as a spectrum from say guns, um, uh, all the way up to machine guns, uh, howitzers, tanks, 
small nuclear devices in your closet. At, in, the, in the law, there is a, um, a doctrine of um, strict negligence that says, if you do something that is inherently dangerous to other people, you are responsible for all results, regardless of whether it was your fault or not. You, are, you, you take on that responsibility. And so I would, I would think of putting the gun right issue and the limits on it in terms of degree of uh, uh, lethality under that kind of regime. And beyond a certain point, you, you should not have those weapons there. Um, so, but uh, I'm, let me turn this over to Richard and, and, and Stephen, uh, who I'm sure know much more about this than I do. Stephen, why don't we go to you first? Yeah, I'm not sure that I know more about this than David does, but uh, I would second, uh, certainly, the gist of his points. I do think the Second Amendment is a universal principle and it is absolute, right? I think both of those features are, are, are important. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it is a right that does need to be contextualized. And I do think some kinds of restrictions are appropriate in different contexts. So if we say, for example, that the, uh, the right to self-defense is a universal and timeless absolute principle, we all have that right. We are delegating portions of that to the, the government on our, on our behalf, but we don't alienate that our right by, by delegating some of it to the government. At the same time, what the right to self-defense implies if I'm living in a, a major urban area, say like I'm walking around in Manhattan regularly, compared to what the right to self-defense would require if I'm living in a small Alaska town, with lots of wilderness surrounding me, it is a contextual judgment about what range of weapons are necessary for me to appropriately uh, engage in, in self-defense. So I'm open to the idea that Alaska would have different kinds of restrictions compared to a city like, like, uh, like Manhattan. Or to stick with the, the, the Manhattan example, I'm not gonna go with the, the tactical nukes the way David did, but uh, you know, I just imagine walking around in the streets of Manhattan, it seems perfectly reasonable that I would uh, uh, be open to or, or have the right to carry around a knife or a handgun, but something like a grenade uh, would not be an appropriate weapon for me to carry around, partly because knives and handguns I can control and the, the range of negligent uh, homicide that's going to result from that is, is totally under my control. But if I'm planning to use a hand grenade for, for self-defense, I can't control that. I'm, I'm putting myself in an inherently, potentially negligent circumstance. And so a restriction on a hand grenade, I'm open to the arguments on, on that sort of thing as well. So that's a quick comment. I've got a couple of other things, but uh, as Vicky pointed out, we're running short on time. So I'll cycle back if there's time. Okay, Stephen went contextual, so I'll go textual. So <laughs> the Second Amendment text, the Second Amendment text interests me a lot because the word infringe, which is used here, is really quite delicate, isn't it? I mean, infringe, that, that is really a restriction on the government doing much of anything mm. uh, regarding your right to bear arms. There's another textual point, which is interesting, bear arms. I mean, arms is short for armaments. Doesn't say you have a right to bear arms, you know, so long as they're not weapons of war, so long as they don't, you know, include a magazine of more than X rounds. So that's interesting, too, to me. And also, David, I think your point about the preamble and Scalia's, I know the militia is part of the preamble, but it, more interesting to me is the free state idea. So it's almost mm -hmm. as if uh, it's almost as if the founders are saying this right includes the right 
includes the important principle of preserving freedom. And if a government is coming at you, an authoritarian, and it's warring against you, um, that, that to me is the hint that this right should include rights to bear arms, to protect yourself from your own government. Mm. On the other hand, I, um, listening to what Stephen said, I, I think the context is something like this. If, if at some point you could designate that the government is at war with you, the old adage of all is fair in love and war, all bets are off, including the Constitution, you know, and it's just going to be a mad grab for weapons and guns. So that makes me not all that eager to say that people can hold weapons of war. So I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic, in other words, with the argument that you can't really hold weapons of war if, if you're not at war. But the delicate thing there is you can lose this overnight. I mean, they can ban guns and they're at war with you and you're now defenseless. And now what do you do? You have to charge, uh, you know, the local arms cachet. One thing I'll, I'll leave you with, with is just backing up as to why there are these mass shootings. Uh, it might interest the audience to know that if you read John Lott's work, Lott is the expert, L-O-T-T, -T, John Lott. There's a book he wrote called, I think it's called More Guns, Less Crime. John found out that 95%, something like 90 or 95% of the multiple victim shootings in America in the last 50 years have been in gun-free zones. So when you think of what a gun-free zone is, it is specifically a zone that bars Second Amendment rights. So, the, so the, the argument could be the real trouble here is there's not sufficient Second Amendment rights in certain pockets. Mm. David, David talked about an island and a sea of uh, mob mentality. These little pockets of gun-free zones carved out in wherever, uh, post offices, where people go postal, or uh, you know, elementary schools. Um, it's an invitation for crazies to go in knowing they're going to meet no resistance. So that is something I've never seen the gun control advocates handle. And it is ties back to the Second Amendment because you're basically saying these are pockets where you don't have Second Amendment rights and notice that's where all the trouble is. So, mm. uh, for mass shootings at least, so I'll leave it at that. Richard, I actually have a question if you don't mind. Um, an argument that I often hear, and this is often from people who don't know a lot about history, but that this idea that we're gonna face a tyrannical government is absurd conspiracy theory, um, exaggeration. How, how do you respond to that? I think you have to have some kind of measure or sense of what a totalitarian government is. I mean, I think even Ayn Rand said something about if they close the borders, if they shut down free speech, I think banning, I, I think banning uh, reasonable weapons would be an example, or confiscations. I mean, they've happened in places like Australia and elsewhere, but no one would call Australia a totalitarian government. So I think, Vicky, some kind of measure of when it's becoming totalitarian uh, is required, but it's not, I don't think it's a precise measure. Um, but historically, cases of Weimar Germany and Mussolini's Italy, they did confiscate weapons. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, sometimes over the weekend. So sometimes these things can be abrupt and clearly measurable. And then, uh, you know, all basically all hell breaks loose and it's almost like anarchy. But then they have all the guns and you don't. I think in America, gun ownership is so widespread, actually, 
and becomes more widespread with every threat actually from gun controllers that from a practical standpoint, I have a hard time believing there ever could be widespread gun banning or confiscation in the US, but they are using other methods like restricting ammo. You can't get ammo. There's ammo shortages all over the US. So, or they're trying to make gun manufacturers liable legally for deaths. So, so to the extent they run gun makers out of business, see, there are these other avenues they're pursuing to make it almost practically impossible to bear arms, uh, quite apart from whether they repeal the Second Amendment. Let me piggyback on this, uh, especially at the fear of tyrannical government. My, I've had a large number of informal conversations with people in uh, the United States and in Canada. And I think the, uh, the background cultural set is much less sophisticated and not at all focused on constitutional interpretations and so on. Instead, what my sense is uh, from these discussions is that if you go through the potential uh, legitimate purposes of owning a gun, hunting, target practice, uh, uh, and maybe uh, self-defense with respect to your fellow citizens and or with respect to the government, it's a, it's a pre-political view that none of those really are legitimate or realistic. So the people I talk with, they will just say, hunting, well, what kind of people go hunting, right? Those are not <laughs> like really civilized people. And yeah. <laughs> there's not a legitimate purpose from that perspective. What yeah. kind of purpose a person wants to go to a, to a shooting range and try all kinds of guns and just shoot things and so forth, right? It's just, that's just not a, a morally healthy person. So respecting that person's right is, is further down. And then part of it does come from a sense that we are living in a highly civilized society and we have delegated uh, self-defense to the police and the, and the system, it worked pretty good. We don't really need to have personal firearms and so forth because it's already being looked out for us. And the idea that the Canadian government or even the American government is going to turn into a tyrannical dictatorship, that's just outer space aliens kind of stuff. So they can't even get to the point of taking seriously the idea that there are principled values and principled constitutional uh, 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 interpretations that would legitimate the other side's position. Uh, Vicki, may, may I just interject quickly? The, the, the point you made, Stephen, about the uh, self-defense, and it, it's been studied that the response times for the police oh, yeah. Yeah. Is, is so uh, long that they yeah. become, in effect, they become note takers who show up at the scene afterwards and you know, take down the facts and the claims and then hand them over to the detective. So yeah. um, that's another reason to say, listen, there should be, I should be able to hold arms you know, until the police come. And so I've delegated this authority, but that doesn't mean they're going to be on my front lawn, you know, the minute I'm being accosted. So, um, yeah. Yeah. One of the big mysteries to me in this debate has been uh, the perspective of women who seem overwhelmingly in favor of gun control right. when with respect to exactly that issue, rape culture and so forth that they're yeah. strongly afraid of, you know the police are not going to arrive uh, quickly enough to, to end the sexual assault or the rape or whatever it is. But the gun is the great equalizer, right? So if you want equal rights uh, and, and then have equal power, right? So uh, a 120 pound woman with a gun can take out any 200 pound man and so forth. Thanks. I know one for me, one of the things that always strikes me is whatever you think of President Trump, but the call that he was a tyrant and at the same time then trying to take people's guns away, which makes no mm. sense to me. Mm. But mm. What do I know? 
All right, let's move on to our next topic, which we um, specifically wanted to do something a little bit more positive um, today instead of focusing so on so much negative. Um, and one of the things is that we do have some COVID success stories. For one, we have the rapid sequencing of COVID and the incredibly fast development of COVID vaccines. So I'm wondering what does this say about scientific discovery and innovation and about the position of the United States considering that three of the six primary vaccines were developed in the United States Mm. with one that was a co-product with a German team. And also what about the drive to reduce the obstacles that are created by the government and the FDA when it comes to bringing pharmaceuticals and other products to market? Mm-hmm. So why don't I start with you, Stephen, on that? Yeah. Yeah, I uh, amidst all of the gloomy news and gloomy trends that are out there, uh, I, I found myself impressed and encouraged by uh, a, a, a huge amount of the, the COVID reaction, uh, despite all of the inefficiencies and, uh, and so forth that were going on there. But uh, it is extraordinarily impressive, the, uh, the science of immunology, the science of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of pandemics, uh, now compared to a generation ago, compared to a century ago. And I find myself cheering every time I read the journalistic uh, accounts of what was going on in the labs in response to the outbreak of the of the of the pandemic? I mean, never before in history has been there uh, such fast development of new knowledge and sharing across borders right, of the knowledge to operationalize it as has occurred just in the past year or or so. And so, I do want to to celebrate that. And then on top of that, the very quick uh, uh, biological engineering that was going on, working with the, uh, the business structure, the incredibly uh, uh, sophisticated logistics structures nationally and internationally that have been developed over the course of the last two generations. Uh, all of that has been extraordinarily impress- uh, impressive and unprecedented. Uh, so I do want to, to underscore that. I know another element of this is uh, those of us interested in entrepreneurship and uh, policies bearing on entrepreneurship and innovation and uh, bemoaning uh, uh, various kinds of obstacles and so on. It is a striking fact that of the the six major operative vaccines that have been developed over the past year, uh, three of them were developed in the United States. One was uh, co-developed with a German team. Uh, and of course, there's the Chinese one, the Russian one, and the uh, the British one. Uh, and then there are two others that are fairly far along in development, one of them also in the United States. So if we count all of those, that's eight of them, uh, fully 50% of them are, are developed in the United States. So this is uh, to speak somewhat parochially then about uh, American innovation policy and then the state of innovation in the U.S., and it does strike me as, uh, at least by relative international standards, things are as good in the United States as they uh, are or, or can, can be expected to be. So I don't necessarily see that we are in a decline state, whatever problems we have with particularly policies that, uh, that bear upon entrepreneurship and, and, and innovation. And then, of course, the, uh, the rate of innovation uh, by historical standards uh, is, again, unprecedented. So I think there's a lot of good news there. Uh, Vicky mentioned in her preamble to this the, the role of the FDA. 
It is striking that in previous uh, pandemics, the, uh, the FDA has been uh, berated for being an obstacle uh, to the development and, and releasing of various kinds of treatments or even experimenting with various kinds of treatments in the, in the AIDS epidemic with respect to mer medical marijuana with all sorts of cancer treatments and so on. And I do think that a lot of the beating up upon the, B the FDA that's been occurring over the last 30 to 40 years did finally get some traction this time around. And, and one of the reasons why we haven't had to wait three, four, eight years for uh, anti-COVID vaccinations to come out is the, the effectiveness of uh, learning from those past historical records. So I do think another point of optimism coming out of, uh, of all of this just is that there's a much greater chance that there will be significant FDA reforms as a result of that. And due to that, we will have uh, uh, pharmaceuticals coming out at a much faster rate. And, and, and additionally, companies won't be carrying their hundreds of millions of dollars of development costs for multiple years or decades. So the cost of the new pharmaceuticals, once they're released, will be significantly lower. So those are two very positive trends. Before um, I go to you, Richard, I just wanted to point out Lawrence Borland mentioned that the application for patent rights have avoided using the word vaccine because the shots do not make the classical definition of vaccine. So I did just want to point that out. Mm. Um, and Richard, what do you have to say about this? Well, just very quick, I really want to resist being pessimistic at all in trailing Stephen's comments. So I'll try to focus on. <laughs> So my angle here is hoping, 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 I did say that three times, hoping that people would speak and think more kindly of pharmaceutical companies. Hmm. So I think the hate, I've noticed it in academia and elsewhere, the hatred for pharmaceutical companies is so great. Now, is it because, you know, is that going to happen because of this? It's a one-off. I don't expect the hatred to go away. And, and the other thing is, I think, because people would just show up and get the shot without paying for it because it was subsidized, um, that, that's kind of an artificial loving of the pharma companies because they typically don't charge nothing for their um, vaccines. But I totally endorse what Stephen is saying. I think it is, really is good news. And just to throw in one other piece of good news, but it's not really our topic, I think the whole Zoom teleconferencing Techno I think that was an amazing achievement as well. It's not like these technologies didn't exist previously, but the way they were ramped up so quickly with so few crashes and so few mess ups. And it's just, I think it's just remarkable. And I think that's gonna be a kind of permanent change where people got used to the idea of interacting with each other uh, without having to travel long distances, waste a lot of time and money. And so it's not quite related to pharma, although there is such a thing as telemedicine where doctors mm -hmm. are performing and diagnosing from afar. That's been going on for a while. But that's another piece of good news, I think, coming out of this whole event. Nice. Uh, Vicki, if I could just jump in for a sec. I, I've got a, uh, it's more of a question for um, Stephen and, and for Richard, if you know. Um, when pandemic came along and the vaccine uh, development began, most of the reports said, oh, it'll take years. And then Trump, Trump made what everyone thought was a ridiculous claim, we'll have a vaccine by the end of the year. And, um, and then as time went on, it began to look more and more possible. Um, and that was amazing. And it is amazing. But uh, 
I was reading something about the beginning of it uh, back in uh, actually last February, possibly earlier, that um, people were aware of the uh, COVID, COVID uh, uh, the virus, and they had there had been development on I believe it was called messenger RNA that was then tapped for at least some of the vaccines. And um, so there was, this is not to take away from the people who actually created the vaccine, but there was a lot of work, prior work that went into it. And I, to me, that is another sign of what is great about science and the context of, of uh, objectivity mm. and freedom of, of exchange of information that um, science represents. And in some ways, you know, I, I, you can make a case that um, it's represented best in American science, uh, not to the exclusion of there are many brilliant scientists elsewhere, but our institutional structure, um, mm. I think contributed a lot to uh, uh, the results that we're getting, which are, which are indeed amazing. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I've, I'll put that as a question. Uh, well, that's a question I would just say, yes. <laughs> okay. Well said. Yes. <laughs> well, let me say something that bridges what, two, what you two are saying, which I, I think might be interesting to people. The epistemology of how public health did this, by that I mean the epidemiology, projections leading to lockdowns. I think there's abundant evidence that Mm. kind of scare forecasts that led the way to massive lockdowns was a major public health, public policy blunder. Mm. Now, this set up against what Stephen is talking about, which is an amazing scientific um, process within these private corporations. So I'm, maybe I'm imagining too much here, but I'm imagining a wildly different performance by the profit-oriented Pfizer's, Moderna's, and others of the world, and the eight or six that you mentioned, Stephen, and the rather shabby, terrible performance of Fauci, the CDC, the uh, WHO, all these non-profit-oriented public health. So there's a real clash there, and looking out in the future for there to be continued strong and good and scientific performance by the pharmas, they're gonna have to be left private but there are challenges, as you know, even Trump wanted to impose, and I think as they've begun to impose price controls on pharma. And to the extent we move towards socialized medicine as they did in Britain and elsewhere, the whole history of that has been to eradicate pharma companies. So, so Switzerland, Britain, all sorts of other Anglo countries had decent pharma companies until they adopted socialized medicine. Then they basically said, we're going to pay you a small amount for these things. And all the they basically folded up, left or merged with American companies. So, I, I, Stephen, I agree with you that there's this amazing brainiac brain power within pharma. But the reason I think it's concentrated in the U.S. is we have not yet socialized medicine. And if mm -hmm. we keep going down this route, you know, 20 years from now, there won't be any decent pharma companies to, to do the kind of things they just did. That's what I that's what I worry about. So that would be an argument for continuing to defend these pharma companies yeah. and their rights. Thanks, Richard. Well oh, go ahead, Stephen. No, I was just saying, well said. Yeah, the, uh, the science and the epistemology and the institutional culture there is still by and large very healthy. 
Yeah. As we have always been saying for, for years now, it's on the political economy that the, the, uh, the disasters are. Yeah. Well, let me take this opportunity to invite you again to submit any questions that you might have. You can do it either on the Zoom chat or on any of the platforms in the comments section. And we do have a couple of questions that I do wanna to get to. One is from Tom Alvord. And he says, Speak, speaking of free speech, Ayn Rand said the time for revolution is when we lose free speech. Is that happening now? Is it too late? Well, I would, I, I would say, ahead, um, we should keep in mind uh, uh, a point that Rand made that censorship is an act of government. It's an, a coercive act involve, involving force to shut people up or punish them for what they've said. What, what is too often described as censorship, the kind of thing that uh, uh, Facebook and, and other social media companies do when they will not, um, when they you know, drop a post or will not allow it to go up. <clears throat> um, as private companies, that is their editorial choice. We can object to it. Um, and in a competitive marketplace, uh, in, if competition is free, uh, despite their mammoth size, um, it can be fought by other venues and, and, and other speakers. Uh, universities are a special problem because of the vast government funding that um, uh, which you, when you build a, a, a cancel culture and um, you know, limitations on academic freedom on top of government subsidies and support, that's another problem. Um, but I mean, I think what we were talking about a moment ago with the, uh, you know, the, just the explosion and um, combination of cooperative and competitive um, acti scientific activity on the part of the pharma companies is tells us that free speech is not dead. So I, I would say, no, we're nowhere near that time. And that's not the only condition um, as important as it is. Well, I also want to point out Lawrence um, Portland also mentioned that he has been a physician for 45 years. And he says, we're well along the way to centralized control. And um, there's kind of mass <laughs> retirements going on uh, among physicians. So I did want to point that out as well. Let me ask another question. Philip really has asked, did you watch the Oz police takedowns during lockdown? Did anybody here see any video of the police? The, Obviously, the, uh, Australia has. means Australia, specifically in the state of Victoria, and then more specifically in Melbourne. Yes. Yeah, yeah there there was some uh, yeah, eye-opening stuff there. It, it, it tags on to Richard's point about uh, how quickly tyrannical restrictions can be enforced. Uh, it wasn't gun takeaways, but it was a matter of. You know, we all think of as Australians as uh, <laughs> you know, highly civilized, although you know, enjoying their beers and Barbies uh, <laughs> kinds, kinds of people. But uh, even in a relatively relaxed culture there, uh, the, uh, the authoritarian reaction and enforcement uh, in jackboot fashion, uh, just overnight, it was shocking and eye-opening. So yes, we, we need to be very vigilant. And I appreciate you pointing out that it is a good example of tyranny happening very 
quickly. Yeah. Eric Kalin asks, would any of the three gentlemen agree that government has no proper role in fighting the flu and similar threats to health, other than perhaps restricting uh, the movement of people known to be contagious? Richard, what do you, what do you think about that? Yes, I think the government has no role. I don't think there should be an FDA. I don't think there should be a, a CDC could be easily privatized. I think it began as a privatized. I don't think there should be an NIH, especially the way they fund junk science. So uh, I think the NSF would be another example of this, the National Science Foundation. Yeah, I, I think the whole issue of public health, if it's defined as the way health can affect the public, that's obviously a, a field of study, but yes, I, I would be against the government having a role uh, in uh, of, of this broad with the Broadway they have now. Yeah. Let me follow that up with: um, Do you think they have a role in restricting the movement of people who we know are contagious with some? I don't, I don't know about that, but I remember writing in last April something to the effect of: the government should come out and announce and make it very clear that if you know you have a sickness and you're out there, then you're negligent. Now, that is that the same as quarantining people and, and telling them where to live and move and stuff? I'm very reluctant to go to that second part. But the first part is if you just put people on notice for a particular, obviously, on the books thing already, namely torts, the whole tort system, you cannot inflict a wrong on others knowingly uh, I, I think they just should have made a statement like that. Not that people out of self-interest wouldn't quarantine themselves. They would. I mean, anybody wakes up with a cold, usually calls the boss and says, I'm not coming in. I mean, nobody. And then the boss says, if you dare come in, I'm not letting you come in. So these things are, these, <laughs> things, are these things are handled voluntarily in ways people can't imagine uh, or don't seem to imagine. They feel the need that government has to control the whole thing centrally. But I, I, that, that's the most I can think they should do. Come out and remind people that they're obliged not to hurt others unknowingly. And it could be proved in a court that you went out, you know, this came up in the mid-80s with AIDS. People were said, you know, you cannot run around if you have AIDS and go to bathhouses and do things where you are knowingly transmitting this or you're going to be uh, prosecuted. Mm -hmm. So that would be a great deterrent, I think, without the government being the command and control, doing it in a command and control way. Yeah. I in the go case ahead, David. of COVID, I would just do, I say, I'd maybe go a step further than Richard, um, because this was a new virus. Um, we did not have experience with it as we had with the flu and the cold. Um, and, uh, but it was very, it was known very, very early that you were contagious before you uh, had symptoms yourself. So people were in the position of uh, not knowing how they could comply, whether they had to comply with such a government mandate as Stephen was, I'm sorry, Richard was suggesting, which I agree with. So, and given everything else that was unknown, I, I, I think it, it, it might've been a valid uh, exercise of caution to put some restrictions on until um, it, people had learned enough to be able to do everything privately without these, you know, hideous lockdowns and just adding to what uh, both Richard and David are saying, when I think about this, I think there's two relevant dimensions to attend to before we consider public policy implications. And the vast majority of this is going to be uh, sorted out by private self-responsible individuals and organizations along the lines Richard suggested. But the way we take David's point, you know, the, uh, 
diseases and conditions uh, can be arrayed along a spectrum from low contagion to high contagion. And so that's one relevant dimension. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, getting AIDS, for example, is low contagion. So it's hard to get AIDS. Right. You have to get a blood transfusion or have sex with someone who's got the condition. On the other hand, a cold, my understanding is pretty high contagion. So we've got this one dimension. Another dimension that's important though is the seriousness dimension, right? The the cold is not that serious, right? But on the other hand, if I get measles, that's more serious. If I do get AIDS, that's even more serious. So there's a seriousness Mm. dimension as well. And so I put those on a two by Mm. two, or you get a two by two chart when you plot the two dimensions. So when you start to get into the one quadrant where these are highly contagious and highly serious conditions, and we're not sure that individuals and organizations are up the learning curve enough to be able to handle those things, then we might start thinking about government interventions and policies. That's interesting. Yeah. It's a a metric as at least. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Well, why it's the sense of injustice and I would absolutely agree with that. Um, I'm going to end on, we've got one more question, and I'm hoping that this is ending on a positive note, but I've seen this question a number of times in other in other webinars, and this in particular was emailed to me, so let's see how we do. <laughs> uh, the question is, do you think the USA has reached the point of no return? So, Stephen, why don't you take that? Uh, no return reading between the lines of uh, a downward spiral into death yeah. and insignificance or something like that. Let me finish. He says Thomas Sowell thinks that the election of President Biden that it has. And he said, to be fair to Sowell, he doesn't think it's impossible to turn it around, but um, it's going to be very difficult. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I lean toward optimism, so I don't, I don't think uh, I've seen any of the trends. We do have problems. We have some pretty significant problems. We've got lots of worrisome trends. At the same time, we've got an enormous number of very smart people. We've got lots of forums in which we can engage in all of these kinds of discussions. We're aware of what those issues are. We've got the resources to be able to, to handle them. So I think uh, it will be messy and ugly in some cases, but we will, you know, at worst, muddle along. Well, thank you. Thank you, Stephen, David, Richard, and thank everyone for joining us today. Again, I'm Vicki Odino. If you enjoyed this video or any of our other materials, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at atlassociety.org. And if I remember correctly, I think, Richard, you have a Morals and Market yes. tomorrow? Tomorrow night, uh, Environmentalism is Anti-Capitalism. So that's the title. And uh, I think Dr. Kelly might be on with me. So we talked about that. Nice. So, yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. And excellent. And you can go to our website um, to get more information about that. And then please tune in next week when Patrick Patrick Friedman from Seasteading will be our guest for the Atlas Society Asks. And have a great week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Vicki. Thanks, Vicki. Thanks, Vicki. Nice guys. Thanks, everyone. Great job. <laughs>